Today's scripture reading comes from the book of Mark, chapter 13, verses 1 through 13, and 32 through 37. I will be reading from the English Standard Version. Mark, chapter 13. And as he came out of the temple, one of his disciples said to him, Look, teacher, what wonderful stones and what wonderful buildings. And Jesus said to him, do you see these great buildings? There will not be left here one stone upon another that will not be thrown down. And as he sat on the Mount of Olives opposite the temple, Peter and James and John and Andrew asked him privately, Tell us, when will these things be? And what will be the sign when all these things are about to be accomplished? And Jesus began to say to them, See that no one leads you astray. Many will come in my name, saying, I am he, and they will lead many astray. And when you hear of wars and rumors of wars, do not be alarmed. This must take place, but the end is not yet. For nation will rise against nation and kingdom against kingdom. There will be earthquakes in various places. There will be famines. These are but the beginning of the birth pains. But be on your guard. For they will deliver you over to councils, and you will be beaten in synagogues, and you will stand before governors and kings for my sake to bear witness before them. And the gospel must first be proclaimed to all the nations. And when they bring you to trial and deliver you over, do not be anxious beforehand what you are to say, but say whatever is given to you in that hour, for it is not you who speak, but the Holy Spirit. And brother will deliver brother over to death, and the father his child, and children will rise up against their parents and have them put to death. And you will be hated by all for my name's sake, but the one who endures to the end will be saved. Verse 32. But concerning that day or that hour, no one knows, not even the angels in heaven, nor the Son, but only the Father. Be on guard, keep awake for you do not know when that time will come. It is like a man going on a journey when he leaves home and puts his servants in charge, each to his work, and commands the doorkeeper to stay awake. Therefore, stay awake, for you do not know when the master of the house will come, in the evening or at midnight or when the rooster crows or in the morning, lest he come suddenly and find you asleep. And what I say to you, I say to all, stay awake. May God bless the reading of his word. Will you join me with prayer, in prayer again one more time? Father God, as we look into your text, we pray that your spirit would be working in our hearts so that as the old hymn says, that we might see you more clearly, that we may love you more dearly, that we may follow you more nearly. In Jesus' name, amen. I want you to think of a time when you saw a view so amazing, so breathtaking, that all you could do was just sit there and look. Maybe say, wow. 
Maybe it was during a visit to a national park. Maybe it was the view from Pometic Mountain in Acadia National Park overlooking the Atlantic Ocean. Or maybe you're at Yosemite National Park at sunset, watching the sun slowly go down over Half Dome. Or maybe in Zion National Park, looking at the beautiful reds, the pinks, the browns, the grays of the canyons there. Or maybe you're thinking of something amazing that's a little bit more man-made. Maybe the skyline of Hong Kong at night with all the bright neon signs and lights. Maybe the intricate detail of the stained glass windows at Saint Chapelle in Paris. Or maybe it was just the vast crowds of people trying to cross through each other at the giant intersection near Shibuya train station in Tokyo. Think about that amazement. That amazement might be what our disciples, what the Jesus' disciples at the beginning of our passage were feeling as they were walking around Jerusalem and they saw the temple. Here's a picture of a model of what the temple might have looked like during Jesus' time. If you, look at the, the, if you look at the front over here on the bottom, you can see a little pathway and some stairs and an entryway. And that gives you some sense of the scale of this temple, just how large the walls were, how huge the columns were, just how ginormous the complex was. You see, in the first century BC, Herod the Great decided to undertake this giant construction project. And so he took the temple that had been built when Israel came back from Babylon in the exile, and he made it bigger. He enlarged the, the, the complex, and he made, he made the temple even grander. You know, we find in John that they said it took 46 years, one of the biggest construction projects of that time, to create what you see behind me. And so you can understand, the disciples are standing there, and they're awed by, by what they're seeing, this, this amazing building, all the huge stones, you know, all the manpower it took in order to create this thing. But they forgot something. They forgot what Jesus said back in Mark chapter 11. If you remember uh, Minister Jeff just a few weeks ago, and it was a long time ago, so I understand if, you know, it slipped past your mind, but a few weeks ago, Minister Jeff preached about the temple and the fig tree when Jesus used the fig tree as a metaphor for the temple. And what we saw there was the fig tree had leaves. The fig tree had the appearance of growth. The fig tree had the appearance of abundance. But on closer examination, the fig tree bore no fruit. And so the disciples, in looking at the leaves of the temple and being astonished and awed by, by that, have completely forgotten what Jesus had said that even though the temple might look this glorious on the outside, on the inside, there was no fruit there. And ultimately, the temple would be judged and destroyed for that lack of fruit. And so, the disciples tried to recover in some ways, right? They're like, oh, whoops, oh, we, we totally forgot about that. But, oh, so they, they try to say, okay, well, Jesus, what are the signs of this? You know, how do we know that this is true? How do we know that this is actually going to happen? And Jesus answers in a really strange way. He doesn't give a very direct answer. 
This, this text is one of the most confusing texts in the New Testament. Uh, you know, if you read through different commentaries, every commentary has a different interpretation of the different details of this text. So why does Jesus answer in such in this indirect way, in this really confusing way? Well, part of the reason might be because the disciples still aren't getting it. Because maybe the disciples are asking the wrong question. Because Jesus isn't concerned about the signs of the times. What Jesus is concerned about is that his disciples follow him. That his disciples engage in true discipleship. What Jesus is concerned about is that his disciples continue in his footsteps. And so, as we look into the text of how Jesus responds to his disciples, what we find is that we're in the end game now. Jesus does address the end times, but in recognizing that we're in the end game, we must prepare ourselves and persevere to the end. So, what does the end game look like? And what do we have to prepare ourselves for? But when we, we, when we begin to look into how Jesus is answering the question, the structure of his response takes the form of a chiasm. A what? A chiasm. So a chiasm is this literary uh, way of, of describing something that takes the shape of the Greek letter chi, this kind of X-looking shape. And so in a chiasm, what happens is the person speaking or the author will start with one thought, and then slowly continue that thought until reaching a pivot point, the middle, in which case the author goes back and retraces his steps to go back to the beginning. So if you guys are musical or into poetry, it kind of takes this like A, B, C, B, A type form. So one example, short example of a chiasm might be a sentence like, her work consumed all of her time. And then her whole life was spent in toil. So you can see how the beginning and the end resemble each other, and the two pieces in the middle resemble each other too, right? So in the case of Jesus' response, he starts with warning them against false prophets, false messiahs. He continues by telling them to be alert in the midst of wars, in the midst of natural disasters. In the middle, the pivot point, he tells them to endure, to persevere, through persecution. And then he goes back and he gives an example of one of those wars, one of those natural disasters, the so-called abomination of desolation, which we'll talk about in a little bit. And he ends this chiasm once again warning them against false messiahs. So we'll start today as we trace through this chiastic structure with the outside pieces. Um, the orange and pink ones that you see behind me. So Jesus starts in verses 5 and 6 by warning them and saying, See that no one leads you astray. Many will come in my name saying, I am he, and they will lead many astray. And then he continues by telling them uh, that, that they're to be uh, prepared for wars and natural disasters. He tells them that nation will rise against nation, kingdom against kingdom, that there will be earthquakes and famines. And then he says something weird, that these are but the beginning 
of the birth pains. What does he mean by this? What are these birth pains? And what do birth pains have to do with the destruction of the temple? Because you remember, the whole point of this discussion was answering the disciples' question about what are the signs of the destruction of the temple. Well, the second half of the chiasm, which relates to these, uh, these verses, gives us some insight into this. When Jesus talks about the abomination of desolation, I feel like I should say that in a creepy voice, like the abomination of desolation. It sounds like something out of Tolkien, like a ball rag from the depths or smog the dragon, something really scary. The abomination of desolation. And yet, to Jesus' hearers, to the readers of Mark, when they heard the words abomination of desolation, they immediately would know what Jesus was talking about. Because the abomination of desolation refers to Daniel 11, where in Daniel 11, verse 31, we read, Forces from him shall appear and profane the temple and fortress, and shall take away the regular burnt offering, and they shall set up the abomination that makes desolate. Now, Daniel was originally written in Hebrew and Aramaic, but the Greek translation of this text, the phrase abomination that makes desolate, are the exact same words that Jesus uses in the Greek in Mark chapter 13. And so the question is, what was Daniel talking about when he talked about the abomination that makes desolate or the abomination of desolation? Well, most first century Hebrew rabbis and most evangelical Christians today, when they look at Daniel 11, would say that Daniel 11 was talking about something that happened in 168 BC. You see, in 168 BC, the Greek king Antiochus Epiphanes invaded Jerusalem, and he conquered Jerusalem due to a rebellion that was happening. But he didn't just stop with, you know, crushing that rebellion and taking back over Jerusalem. He went into the temple of God. And when he went into the temple of God, what he did was he set up an idol of Zeus on top of the altar. That's pretty bad if you, think, if you have some familiarity with Judaism. But not only did he set up an idol of Zeus on top of the altar, he sacrificed a pig, an unclean animal, inside the temple of God. And so here we have a 15th century artist's depiction of this event. You can see on the right-hand side kind of that, that squarish altar-looking thing, and on top, an idol with all these soldiers desecrating the temple of God. To someone who was Jewish, putting an idol, a false god, in the temple of God, sacrificing an unclean animal, defiling the holiness of the temple, was the ultimate abomination of desolation, the ultimate sin against a holy, holy God. So you can understand why Daniel was so vivid with his imagery when he was predicting these events of what happened in 168 BC. But Jesus when he talks about the abomination of desolation, he's not talking about something that happened in the past. He's talking about something that's going to happen in the future. Some future desecration of the temple. And so we see the fulfillment of Jesus' prediction of the abomination of desolation in the year 70. Because you see, in the year 70, the Jewish people again rebel against the Roman authorities 
And Rome comes in and not only captures Jerusalem, Rome completely obliterates Jerusalem, burning the entire thing to the ground, including the temple. There's a legend that says the fires were so hot that the Romans set that the gold and the silver in the temple melted and melted into the cracks between the stones of the temple and that afterwards the Roman soldiers took apart stone by stone to try to get access to that gold. Now we don't know whether that legend is correct or not. It may be false. But the point being, the temple was once again desecrated in AD 70. It was completely destroyed. Another abomination of desolation. And so when Jesus says that these things are the beginning of birth pains, that these wars and rumors of wars are the beginning of birth pains, he's correcting what his disciples might have misunderstood. Because you see, his disciples, when asking about the signs of the destruction of the temple, they might have been thinking that, you know, when the temple is destroyed, that's when God is coming with his final judgment, when God comes in his full glory and establishes his kingdom on earth, when God comes and obliterates all evil, including what's in that temple. They saw, they wanted to know the signs of the end when Jesus was going to bring his ultimate judgment. And what Jesus is saying here is that there's going to be bad stuff that happens, including the destruction of Jerusalem with all these people fleeing from the fires. But these are but the beginning of birth pains. The destruction of Jerusalem and the destruction of the temple are not the end. They're just the beginning of the end. The beginning of the end game. And so Jesus then warns them that in the midst of cataclysmic events like this, in the midst of cataclysmic events like world wars, in the midst of cataclysmic events like hurricanes and natural disasters, there will be people that come and say, the end is coming. There will be people who claim to be the Messiah. And what Jesus is telling them is not to believe them. And Jesus continues in the text after describing this by saying that when the end actually comes, you will know it. Because when the end actually comes, Jesus, in quoting Isaiah 13, says that the sun will be darkened, the moon will not give its light, the stars will be falling from heavens. And he once again quotes Daniel in saying that the Son of Man, all will see the Son of Man coming in clouds of glory. In Daniel 7, where uh, Jesus is quoting, it, it explains further that the Son of Man will be given dominion and glory and a kingdom that all peoples, that all nations and languages should serve him that his dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away, and his kingdom one that shall not be destroyed. When Jesus comes again, when the end comes, it will be obvious to everyone. And, any, and so anything short of that is a deception. Now, what does this look like for us today? Because honestly, Right now in 2019, there aren't a heck of a lot of people who are coming around saying, I am Jesus, I am the Messiah. I mean, in the past, we had the, you know, the Hal Lindsays and Harold Campings of the world, if you guys know who they were, who would try to predict and say, oh, Jesus is coming in this particular day. But really, nowadays, no one really gives those folks much credence. I mean, especially since they, they failed multiple times in trying to predict when Jesus was coming. And so what do we do with this text when we don't really deal with the idea of false messiahs? But what we do deal with today is that there are many different false philosophies, many philosophies in our culture that threaten to lead us astray from the truth. 
that threaten to deceive us from Christ, from the true gospel. And so I think our passage today is an encouragement to be prepared for deception, to be prepared by knowing the truth, by knowing the core of the gospel, not just cognitively, but also in knowing God himself relationally. We're in our third week of baptism class, which uh, Terry Yang and Joe Chung are teaching, and I'm very thankful for them in teaching that. And so if you're interested in being baptized, if you have accepted Christ as your Savior, I'd encourage you to consider attending baptism class. But we call our baptism class Christianity 101. And the reason we call it Christianity 101 is you don't have to be wanting to be baptized to take the class. Some of you guys might have been Christians for decades, and you just need a refresher on some of the core truths of Christianity. And so I'd encourage all of you to consider you know, sitting in on some of those Christianity 101 classes to refresh yourselves on what is the truth that we believe in. We also have different small groups that meet throughout the week. For example, on Friday nights, we have our college fellowship, ICF, and we have our professional fellowship, Caris. And they're right now going through a Bible study on 1 Corinthians. And so if you're not plugged into a small group right now, or not part of a small group Bible study, I encourage you to take your bulletin, flip it to the back, and think about different options of getting involved in one of these fellowship groups, not just for the fellowship, but as we study and as we try to wrestle with what is the truth that God has given us in the Bible. Of course, it's not just cognitive, it's relational too. And so I'd encourage you guys, if it's not your habit, to start thinking about taking, maybe at the beginning, five minutes, ten minutes, 15 minutes in the morning or at night, just reading a short little bit of scripture, rolling it over in your head, thinking about what the scripture is saying and how God might be challenging you through it, and spending that time in prayer. Because we have to be prepared for deception, and the way in which we're prepared in following Jesus is by keeping our feet firmly planted in the truth, both in our knowledge of the truth of the gospel but also in our knowledge of God himself relationally. So we're to prepare ourselves for for deception, but that isn't the only part of the chiasm, if you remember. There's the middle part, where Jesus, in verses 9 through 13, challenges his disciples to persevere through persecution. He says in, in verse 9, But be on your guard, for they will deliver you over to councils, and you will be beaten in synagogues, and you will stand before governors and kings for my sake. Skipping ahead. And brother will deliver brother over to death, and father his child, and children will rise against parents and have them put to death. And you will be hated by all for my name's sake. But the one who endures to the end will be saved. Jesus says that they're going to face persecution from religious authorities. They're going to face persecution from political authorities. His followers are even going to face persecution from their own family members. We're followers of Jesus. And where did Jesus go in his life? Did he go to a huge palace and live a life of luxury? Jesus suffered 
and went to the cross for the sake of humanity. And so if we are to follow Jesus, then we also should expect to suffer and to face persecution. But why does God bring us through this persecution? Wasn't Jesus' suffering good enough? Well, one possibility might be that persecution and suffering grow us in our faith. We read in James 1, Count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds, for you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. And let steadfastness have its full effect, that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. Trials and suffering and persecution can grow our faith, can grow us in the way in in which we persevere in faith. Trials also can help prove out our faith. We read in 1 Peter, you have been grieved by various trials so that you have so that the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold that perishes, though it is tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. So another reason might be that trials not just grow our faith, but they prove the genuineness of our faith. But we see in our passage today that it's not just about ourselves. It's not just about growing our faith or proving out our faith. In our passage today, Jesus says that going through persecution is a means by which others might come to know Christ. If we look at the section we skipped in verses 9 through 13, it says, On account of me you will stand before governors and kings as witnesses to them. And this gospel must first be preached to all nations. If I just quoted to you verse 10, and this gospel must first be preached to all nations, and I said, this verse is about persecution, what would you say? You might look at me like, huh? But this is what Jesus is saying. Jesus is saying that the suffering that his people go through is a platform by which he brings people to faith. And we see this in the book of Acts with the Apostle Paul. The Apostle Paul was brought before King Herod Agrippa II and Governor Festus. And while he was on trial, the Holy Spirit gave Paul the words to say. And Paul gave his testimony of how he turned from a guy who tried to kill Christians to a guy who proclaimed Christ. And at the end, we see Agrippa said to Paul, in a short time, would you persuade me to be a Christian? And Paul responded, Whether short or long, I would to God that not only you, but also all who hear me this day might become such as I am, except for these chains. We don't know whether King Agrippa became a Christian, but we do know millions of people have read Paul's testimony from when he was on trial, from when he was under persecution, and because of Paul's testimony, have become Christians. But some of you might point out, it's not like we're facing persecution that much in our present context, right? I mean, none of us are at risk of going to jail, in the United States at least. But you know, our culture is changing, and people are becoming a lot more skeptical of faith, especially in academic environments for those of you guys still in school, whether in high school or in college or grad school. people are becoming much more skeptical of Christianity itself. And when we as Christians proclaim that 
Jesus is the one way, truth, and life. That salvation is through Jesus and Jesus alone. We're, we're accused of intolerance. And we're accused of bigotry. I'm reminded back in 1999, Jesse the Body Ventura, a WWE wrestler who somehow got elected as governor of Minnesota, he said, organized religion is a sham and a crutch for weak-minded people who need strength in numbers. And that sentiment, I think, has only grown since 1999 in the 20 years. And so when we're faced with people who accuse us of intolerance and bigotry, when we're faced with people who think those of faith are stupid, that those of faith are weak-minded, it's really tempting to hide our faith and just to, you know, sneak under the radar. But what Jesus is saying in this text is that if we hide our faith and avoid being made fun of, avoid the things that people say to us, we do those who, who if I use the word oppress us, we do those who make fun of us a disservice because we're not giving them the opportunity to hear the gospel and to see the effects of what the gospel can do in people's lives. Reminds me of a story of Wade Watts and Johnny Lee Clary. I don't know if you guys are familiar with these two gentlemen. Wade Watts was a black American preacher in the 70s. Johnny Lee Clary was part of the Ku Klux Klan, a grand dragon. And in 1979, they had the opportunity to have a debate with each other on the radio in Oklahoma City. So when they got to the radio station, they met each other, and I'll read from a Steve Gherkin article. When they first met each other, quote, Watts put out his hand and the confused Clary took it, only to withdraw it quickly after the first touch. He had just broken a cardinal clan rule. The Reverend saw Clary looking at his hand and reassured him, don't worry, Johnny, it won't come off. Clary started calling him a string of epithets. I just want to tell you I love you, and Jesus loves you, Watts replied, unquote. And so during the radio interview, Johnny Lee Clary continued to heap abuse on Watts, and Watts would calmly respond just with scripture. And so when they parted, Watts said, God bless you, Johnny. You can't do enough to me to make me hate you. I'm going to love you, and I'm going to pray for you, whether you like it or not. And Clary continued to persecute Watts. There's a story how Watts was in a fried chicken restaurant, and Clary showed up with a bunch of his Ku Klux Klan members in tow. And Clary said to Watts, I'm going to do to you what you're going to do to that fried chicken. And so what did Watts do? Did he throw the chicken in his face? No, he, he picked up the chicken and kissed it. <laughs> and the amazing ending of this story is that 10 years later, 10 years after that radio station interview, Johnny Lee Cleary became an evangelical Christian. He tore off his Ku Klux Klan robes and he became a preacher. And he didn't just become any preacher. He became a preacher who preached alongside Wade Watts. Because that's the power of the gospel. And that's the power of what persecution can do as we endure through it.
Because just as Jesus dying on the cross healed humanity, we're not Christ. We don't save people. But if we're following Christ, our suffering can also be used by God to bring people into faith. And so Jesus calls us to prepare ourselves for deception and to persevere through persecution. When talking about the end times, this is Jesus' emphasis to continue to follow him, to be a disciple. And so towards the end of our passage, as we close, Jesus goes back to the fig tree. And he says, remember the fig tree. Remember the fig tree. It's not just a tree. It's a metaphor for the temple. Remember the fig tree. When you see the fig tree wither, when you see the temple destroyed, God is near. And remember that God is near because that is your hope as you go through all this suffering. And so when the temple was destroyed in that generation, which Jesus also predicted here, when that temple was destroyed in that generation, there could be this tendency to think, oh, Jesus is coming soon. And that does give hope. And yet we know that as Peter said, with the Lord, one day is as a thousand years, and a thousand years is as one day. In the grand scheme of all of God's creation and all of time, near is what we cling to as hope, but near doesn't mean next year. We're in the end game now, so we must prepare ourselves and persevere to the end. Jesus is clear that we don't know when he is coming again. No one knows that but God. That's not what we're called to do, to figure out the signs of the times. What we're called to figure out is how to be a disciple, how to follow Jesus. We may not see when Jesus is coming, but we see something amazing, something even greater something even greater than the vista at Acadia National Park, something even more spectacular than the lights of Hong Kong in front of the mountains, in front of the harbor. What we see is both Jesus taking on human flesh to heal our brokenness, Jesus dying on the cross for our sins, Jesus resurrecting so that we have victory over death. What we see is the hope of Jesus coming in clouds of glory. And what we have is the promise of Jesus that in this age between his death and when he comes again, in this age between the fall of Jerusalem and when we see those clouds of glory, that he has promised that he is with us from now until the end of that age. And so, as we're in the end game now, we can be prepared for deception. We can persevere through persecution because we have that vision, that spectacular vision, that Jesus' coming is near when all things will be restored, when Jesus' recreation of the entire world will be fulfilled, when all hurt and brokenness is gone. And that is the hope we can cling to through persecution and suffering. Let us pray.
Father God, life is not easy. There are so many things, both internal and external, that put stress and that put pressure on us as tides change, as circumstances change. Um, as those who uh, don't follow you um, reject your name. And yet you have promised that you are with us, that your spirit is at work with us, indwelling us, transforming us, so that we can continue by faith, so that we can continue in following after you, so that we can see you clearly, and so that we can love you, and that this sight and this love might sustain us forevermore. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.